You are a good man, Josh. Yes, I really am quite something. I'm really quite something. I'm really something. I'm quite something. It's really quite something. It was really quite something. A famous monk once said, I don't always know the right thing to do, Lord. But I think the fact that I want to please you pleases you. Hi, Sam. Hi. Eyes front, mister. Eyes front, mister. Well, that was predictable. That was predictable. That was predictable. Follow me. Come with me. But I don't think you're fit to handle the defense. Though I do hate you and everything you stand for. You don't even know me. You've only known me for four minutes. Ordinarily, it takes someone hours to discover I'm not fit to handle the defense. It usually takes people a better part of an hour to hate me and everything I stand for. I'm the press secretary, boo-boo. I don't have that kind of time. Well, that's why you're the press secretary, boo-boo. Don't get cute with me. Don't get cute with me. Someday, someone's going to have to explain to me the virtue of a proportional response. What is the it's... virtue of a proportional response? Damn it! Damn it! Just I wish I like learned how to I wish I was just a skateboarder in my career. <laughs> This industry so much. <laughs> Everyone in it is so bad. They look look like shit. They're shit. Dog shit. Assholes. Skateboarders are moral. Absolutely. No skateboarders ever done anything wrong. Yeah. They're just fucking gleaming the cube. Sometimes uh, they solve murders. Remember that movie? Skateboard yeah, skateboard yeah. culture also generated one of the greatest, probably the greatest pieces of comedy of the 21st century. Jackass. Yeah, that's exactly. Yes. You, you enjoy if you enjoy also, uh, Jackass. That's right. You enjoy skateboarding. You, you know an awesome, T- Tony you know Tony aw- Hawk also one of like the like most fun video game franchises of all time because you can one play it being a total idiot and slowly build up your skill level and be on any number of drugs and oh, yeah. still be still be good at it. Tony Hawk owned. Uh, man, you know it's a great feeling as a kid when you just fucking. You're at your friends and it's like 2 a.m. or some shit when you're like 12 or 13 and someone has a CKY video that they can put on like either on their computer or like just on the TV. When it went on the TV, it's like, oh, this, this shit fucking rocks. I have like I have like a Proustian reaction to the CKY like theme. A reverie. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Aaron Sorkin. Yes. We're back. You thought you were done, but no, there's even more master to class. So, all right. Welcome back. Uh, It's another edition of Into the Mind of Sorkin. Enter the Sorkin. Yeah, it's part two, baby. Um, You know, we we did a lot of expositional kind of work on the idea of master class in the first episode. But this, this is where we really dig deep into the Sorkin. So, few things I found out at the end that I'm just going to append here. When this masterclass was originally released, it had more uh, modules to it. So, I think in total, I, what, Felix, was it, was it was like two and a half hours or something? Yeah, it was. It was made extra fucked up by the fact that it's in like thirty different segments. It's like almost like they should have just done one two-hour video. It's confusing. And, and, and I think a lot of it is just because they, 
he didn't write a class. They just let him talk off the cut. And then they sort of tried to edit it into a class. Mm-hmm. So it's like 13 modules, all like between 8 and 14 minutes long, maybe averaging 11 minutes long. So that's about the length of it in total. However, originally, it had more. And it was 7 hours and 38 minutes long. Damn. You're fucking shitting me. <laughs> How did he... Did he like take? I feel like he didn't take bathroom breaks during that. <laughs> no, that he was probably just has a through. catheter, right? He he does well. He loves astronauts, so he's probably yeah. just diaping it up, right? Yeah, yeah. He they found some sort of like crack too that he was on. Yeah, so like a next generation of crack that that just blasted through eighteen straight hours. I love just having Adderall sweat sitting there and just telling people plot plot is the thing that happens. <laughs> He like yeah, that's psychotic. Seven hours and thirty. He minutes. loves talking. That motherfucker loves talking. Oh, that he loves motherfucker talking. loves to speak. And yeah, he's he not loves. good at it. Although well, he, like he admits people... that he doesn't like it, like or he admits that he's not good at it, which is kind of funny. But, but, but he clearly, he clearly enjoys it. it. Yeah, it's a it's a nice little stroll for him. Yeah, he's um, I think like. I don't know. It's like someone who they admit they're not a great cook, but they just enjoy the act of cooking. It's fun to them. Yeah, yeah. And they take pictures of their ugly food, put it on yeah. Instagram, looking at some of you. Yeah, this is like when someone makes like an extremely wet chicken dish. <laughs> <laughs> One day. Oh, we God, though, no, the wet chicken. We all know what <laughs> I'm talking about here, right? This is for anyone on Instagram or any, any social media platform. If you have chicken, I don't care how delicious it is. It will look gross and wet. Don't post it i yeah. only posted uh i made fake fried chicken this week and i only posted it because it's like the breading makes it look not fried wet. yes it that's the, the thing that's the, the thing but a roasted chicken will it's always, always look disgusting way. it will always look disgusting yep. anyway back to aaron sorkin the roasted chicken of television <laughs> um, the, wet meal. the large wet meal so i i think where we left off was sort of dramatization and story uh, okay, well, first he says most screenplays are like 120 pages. His, because there are more dialogue and dialogue takes up more space, are 140 to 150, or they were when they started out. Now they're 180. He just wrote a 201-page oh screenplay. Um, so when he wrote his first draft of uh, that rom-com, it was 385 pages, and he delivered it to the studio in a shopping bag. I feel like that's a very classic uh screenwriter thing like every screenwriter will tell you listen the perfect screenplay is 120 pages long mine 200 or or mine 450 but yours 120 yes exactly it, the rules I, don't I think apply I've heard to that me. Tarantino writes like 400 page screenplays, but I assume that like 100 yep. pages of that is just descriptions of like what the main character's feet look like and stuff like that also yeah. apparently they're handwritten and he has to have That's them psychotic. Uh, they have to have them transcribed from his uh, apparently barely literate scrawl. <laughs> you know you know who also did that? Tom Fontana, the guy who wrote Oz, the most huh. insane show ever oh, God. written. Oh, I, we really should do an Oz episode sometime. Matt, well, look, I, take, this I take physical do. notes, but uh, I, I'm friend. the only person who I expect to be able to read them. Yeah, because like a screenplay is like a manual for making the movie. And to have to translate it from somebody's insane, especially, can you imagine what like Tarantino's handwriting looks like? No, I've seen some. It's awful. 
Matt, we should do a This Is Us about Oz. Oh, yeah. Ooh. Absolutely. That show, was a, that show was the first attempt to make a good show. It was like a mutant uh, a preemie baby. It was like it was like the rocket that killed Laika. Yes, it was the uh, furthest first Soviet space flight of yeah, prestige it was TV. Like, yeah, sacrifices had to be made. Operation just barely got out of the atmosphere. Yes. Okay, so uh, the 385-page screenplay. Uh, when he had to explain it, he said, "Well, I fell in love with," and I thought he was going to say "blow," but he said my own voice. <laughs> which i mean one causes the other like you know blow does tend to make you fall in love with your own voice um so he brings it to rob reiner who's you know whatever legend in the field puts together these very like um classic beloved films and he says okay let's keep the rom-com part and lose literally everything else about the president being the president and so he took what was cut like he he scooped up what was on the cutting room floor of that, and literally that was the West Wing, <laughs> which, by the way, was apparently never like when it was pitched as well. Also, was considered they considered doing a high concept thing where like you would never see the president and it would yeah. just be an office, which might have been cool. Like, and because if you think about someone like Ianucci and the, like the thick of it, like. Doing the office politics of politics is very fun. Yes. And that could have, but, but it, that also requires like a sense of humor that Sorkin doesn't really have and whatever. So like it went like, I don't know, this, this conflicts with the, I wanted to make an, like an office drama about the White House and then him saying, I had this huge story about a president. So I, I don't know. I think he really bounced around with what he wanted to do. The only thing he knew for sure is that he loves the damn president. He really does love the damn president. He's, yeah, it's hilarious, yeah, that he wrote two president things. I mean, one, like, as we talked about in the first episode of this, uh, was a vehicle for Robert Redford's terrible idea. <laughs> so bad. Absolutely He's such a bimbo. What a, what a benevolent bimbo. I love it. He's a great bimbo. Like, you know that, like, the most beautiful women ever were like just trying like trying to just like fucking get some of that pipe oh and he was like can i tell you something and they're like yes 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 like it's happening and then he's like i want to i've been working on a movie about if the president was a widow and had to date and they were like this guy's so fucking stupid he's so (laughs) stupid it's so hot (laughs) he's awesome like we've all been there he's yeah but he is like he could spend the rest of his career only writing screenplays about presidents. He loves them. It's he the loves stakes it, yeah. that he can get off on. Yeah. So uh, we went over a little bit about like the whole his whole attitude towards plot, where he says, "I don't have characters in my head. The tactics that the character uses to overcome an obstacle are what the character is." It's very weird. Um, so uh, he talks about the Facebook story and about um, like sort of he starts it out with Zuckerberg has like a bad date and gets dumped. Um, and he gets that the entire scene is like artificial, even though he used it like apparently the actual Facebook post. The weird thing about Sorkin too is that like he's uh, like an autist that had to come of age without the internet, so he still has more humility than like a like a Zuckerberg. So his whole like thing with um, Zuck that works for him too is like uh, people don't like you, but actually it's because you're smart. So it's the exact same kind of thing. He gravitates towards um, assholes that like have a skill or whatever, and 
and you know whatever his argument is that that it's they're just so special that's their persecution. Um, he does the don't don't write long biographies thing. He says, uh, don't write things about the character that have nothing to do with the story you're telling. I think you're getting involved with magical thinking, which I think is how you would describe the purpose of being a fiction writer to like yeah, five year old like having yeah. an imagination. <laughs> this is magical thinking. Um, what like you like c- closing your eyes and imagining a, a, an, another person who isn't you with a different name and <laughs> history and and in manners of speech? That, that's insane. It's I, madness. You know, that thing about like people hate him for being smart. I realize like oh that sounds familiar, and it's because literally he says that out loud in everything yeah. he yeah. makes. So There's I sent you guys a, the supercut. Yeah, the there's literally a scene yeah. in all of his things where, like, the president or the great man's friend is like, people want to kick your ass and kill you for being so smart. <laughs> like, it, it, there's just no subtext. It's just out there. Yeah, and he literally, among many other pieces of dialogue, repeats it word for word across multiple projects. I mean, oh, he is God. an insane self-plagiarist. The super No, he has so many ticks and, yeah. and, like, easy little uh, pieces of filler that he throws into these scripts. Yeah, like, this is this is not prime fillet. This is a this is some fucking dog chow. Some there's, of it there's was a, a, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of sawdust in those fucking burgers. She's got legs that reach all the way down to the floor or something like oh, that. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Where else would legs go? <laughs> Where? Why would you even want to say that once in a pro in one project? It's, it's alone cute when a, people. It's cute when like a, a it comes from a noir movie in the 1930s, but yeah. like. Like he, he with him, it has all the charm of like the swing dance revival. Yes, yeah, and it's like very weirdly like non-sexual. It's like I'm convinced they used to say that because they didn't invent tits into World War Two. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense. She's got gams from here to Tuesday. Yeah. What is the that? Legs, I don't know. Psycho. The legs I don't thing know. really does like confuse me. Like, I mean, I, I get that there's such a thing as an attractive leg, but I don't know that anyone ever really got. Was it maybe just a euphemism for the for ass? Uh, Matt and I discussed this once. Uh, yeah. Here, I have, I have a, a very well, th- thoroughly thought theory about this. So the okay, legs please. thing was because. When we're, you think about things that could be revealed in women's clothes, it yes. started with like ankles and then slowly up the leg to the knee and stuff. So that was the thing that was being covered and revealed. So it was the thing to lust over. But it was eventually, it was with, the erotic, erotic like uh, yes, yeah, stand in. But by for, World for War Two, as Felix points out, you get like the bikini and now town, the, the entire leg is revealed, which is yes. why all that eroticism of the leg. Has to go either to the, to the ass or to the feet. And the feet. And now yes, you have guys who are obsessed yeah. with asses. North and feet. or south, depending on your personal preference. But like it's like it was like sort of, you know, a, a tribe is in a in a in a fertile plain and then you know the, the, the temperature shifts and the climate changes and all of a sudden they can't forage there anymore. And so they have to move and find a more a more suitable place to go. And so the that horniness, if you that will. energy, that erotic <laughs> fixation has to go. Do they go up into the, the valleys or down into the, the you know mountains? or up into the mountains or down into the valleys? Do I go to the <laughs> go down and like look at the feet and imagine what they look like under those shoes? Or do I just imagine about what that butt looks like? That's what foot fetishism is. Yes. Like, there was a decision made in the 40s where it was like, all right, guys, tits or feet. And yep. <laughs> 90% of men went tits. 
But the ten percent, yeah, the, really the the, hip, the hipster perverts, yes, yeah. Well, this is the ten percent that runs media, banking, government, <laughs> <the feet> guys. <laughs> they do seem to be disproportionately invested in high levels of influence. Crystal is a, the greatest yeah, oh, big journalist time. in the world, yeah. the most uh, Dick Morris, yes, uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo. No, no, not Andrew Cuomo. Uh, Elliot Spitzer, yes, yes. probably Split Andrew guy. Cuomo. I would bet he looks like yeah. one. Do you think yeah. Sorkin's a foot guy? Oh, yeah. I think he's totally non-sexual. I, I think, think, he likes, mean, I think sexual... that's why he writes about legs is that he's not sexual. Yeah, yeah the way he says I, I that, that he, Gams. I think he sees sex as like the necessary evil you have to do to talk to a woman more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to hear yourself speaking to a woman as much to as tell, possible. To explain something to a woman. Yeah. Right. All right. Like, after I'm with done with this boring act. He doesn't act. like feet. He likes pumps. Yeah, he likes like woman's shoes because mm. he's yeah paraphiliac. He's not actually interested in sex. Yeah, and like it's it's a nice court shoe. She she would yeah. wear this to court. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It roots his power and authority. This is a shoe of a woman with a brain who mm-hmm. knows what she's doing, but also is not as smart as me. <laughs> no, yeah, that's slightly less smart than me. Okay, his fantasy, okay. His fantasy is lying in bed next to a woman who's like twenty percent less intelligent than him. Yes. But like still by that right by that math, you know, more intelligent than ninety nine percent of people. Exactly. And he's like, we don't write stories anymore. Right. Just doing that for five hours. Before we move on, can I ask one question based on the previous discussion? Is Aaron Sorkin the most successful, least imaginative writer in the business? Because not only are all his stories about the same guy, Zuckerberg, uh, uh Steve Jobs, the president uh, Atticus Finch, uh, the guy who's whose biggest weakness is that he's too good. They are all yeah. clearly also stand-ins for himself. Of course. Mm-hmm. So all yeah. he does in terms of the scope of his imagination is imagining different guys he's like and how cool they are. Yeah, yes. that's a good yeah. point. He might be the least creative creator in Hollywood history. Yeah, well, like- he also says um, that, uh, again, there's no history to it because, you know, that would be too private for Aaron Sorkin. He's not, you know, he's not a, he's not a, a New York uh, personal memoir girl. He, he says uh, your character only gets – your character was never five years old. Your character only gets to be five years old when the character says, when I was five years old. And then he, you saw him sort of grasp for a memory. And he goes, I saw my father kill himself, just as an example, which is like, did, could anything else have happened wait a minute, at five is he years kidding? old? No, yeah, wait a minute, he's that just wasn't like, him. That's, that's an example. That, yeah, that's oh. just an example. So it has to be just, wild, just wildly dramatic. Yes, exactly. So like, uh, you know, uh, Terrence Malick's, you know, tender reflections on, uh, on childhood where a kid breaks into a woman's house and, and, steals, and steals her panties or whatever would never make it in because you have to literally watch your dad bro- blow your brains out. That's, that's the only stakes that sort of, and that's the only time a childhood is ever worth talking about. And even then the character has to say, I remember when I was five years old. Yeah. Th- th- this is funny for me because I'm currently editing uh, Felix's the two hour. This is us about uh, a million little pieces, which is another thing that apparently just takes a suicide as just like, a, a cord of wood to t- shove into a fire of storytelling, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess some people think it's a very rich, um, like a jumping off point. Um, again, because if you don't write characters, like it's a very traumatic event. 
So, uh, okay, so when he does get into characters, though, he admits certain things about his philosophy on characters, where he says, uh, you know, write characters, not people. Believe it or not, the properties of characters and the properties of people have very little to do with each other. Okay, well, that's definitely true for Sorkin. Um, and he says, I know the goal seems like it should be to, for a character to be as human as possible. That's not the goal, or at least not my goal. So here's the thing. He mixes up human and realist. You don't have to have, like, a realistic character. Like, you can definitely have, like, a surreal character behavior, but they still have to seem fucking human. And he does not know the, 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 the difference, like, at all. To him, like, any kind of style is a, any, like, blood, the bloodlessness of his characters is just, like, a style choice. That he's like, well, yeah, I'm not a realist uh, writer. So, whatever. He's not, like, a Stanislavski fan or whatever. But you can have, like, extremely um, cartoonish characters that nonetheless feel very human and alive and have, like, in, in, internal lives and emotions and aren't just, like, weird, chattering dialogue boxes. So he compares it to photorealism uh, in painting, which is like, again, like realism isn't the only way to enter to like indicate texture or light or movement or action. It's just, it's just like no one sees Guernica and thinks, you know, I just don't see anything really human in here. Like it's not like fucking realistic. Like that's not what it is. Like it's very stylized, but it also has like a lot of a like life and human emotion in it, which he doesn't understand the difference. I, in general, I find any artist who's, vision of their art is uh, to attempt to make it as most like the real world as possible uh very suspect why would you want that reality sucks yeah in fact it bites as some people have said in films it's like that fucking lion king remake where they tried to make it exactly like i actually saw that movie yeah that was smooth lion king smooth lion king i felt like i was staring into the apocalyptic eye of oblivion i mean it was so horrifying, just this literal monstrosity, this, this thing. No, we're going to make them all look like real animals. Like, why? Why would you what, do that? Why would you do that? Also, the they don't that, look like real animals. They look too smooth. Well, but even yeah. if they, some of them look real, and it's just like a, real, like a real lion with its mouth moving, and it's like, what is this? It's like its face is totally inexpressive. It can't <laughs> dance or move around. It yes. just stands there and mouths the thing. Why would that be more interesting to look at than an, uh, something like with a creative, you know, uh, anim- animal or uh, animated style? There was a PBS version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where they had a big lion puppet that talked. That was cooler than yeah. the fucking like animated, reanimated Lion King. The thing that I couldn't, what, that haunted me after seeing that movie and has haunted me since is so they have everyone's favorite characters, right? Timon and Pumbaa, the comic relief, uh, the meerkat, and the boar, right? Well, uh, Timon, the meerkat, voiced this time by Billy Eichner, uh, when he, wow. he spoke, whenever he spoke, the meerkat would stand on its hind legs. Now, apparently, because, of course, this is very realistic, they, they, uh, when uh, a meerkat stands on its hind legs, it kind of presses its hands against its chest, and it, and it looks kind of stiff, which meant that every time he delivered lines, he looked like he was being electrocuted. He looked like he was being compelled to stand that way, and it wasn't natural. Which presumably what would have been happened? What would have happened if they had to use a real meerkat? But it was animated. They made it look gross and alienating and like yeah. and, and stiff and like pained. They made it look like that because in their mind it's like yeah, but it's realistic. 
Yeah. It's like, well, I what mean, are you doing and why? I mean, this is you where, like, no I idea. do, I do respect Sorkin too, where, like, he's like, yeah, like a, like, realistic stuff. I mean, whatever. There are some, like, old, weird, like, Russian films and, like, early French films or whatever where they, where they do, like, sort of hyper realistic kind of stuff. But those are, like, a specific style choice. And also, they're not really real. They have the appearance of being real. And, like, but he doesn't know the difference between uh, real and, like, alive. Like, just because it's stylized, just because it's, like, not real looking doesn't mean that it can also be completely flat and bloodless. Those aren't, like, the same fucking thing. Yeah, no, his whole thing is, like, animatronics. Yeah. Just wind up people yeah. like, spitting, spitting these pre-recorded Hall of Presidents. Pieces. Hall of Presidents. Hall of Presidents. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, that is his perfect, perfect... Uh, that would be like the funnest roller coaster in the world for him. Right. The Hall of Presidents. Yes, that's yeah. his favorite ride. Yeah. That's that's he his space that. mountain. Yeah. Um, so he also talks about writing people who are unlike yourself, which is insane because he doesn't write any character that's All unlike of his any other character. I the think state. he means that he like wrote a woman character. So that is actually what it is. He yeah. like the the, it, the the subtext of this is that he's talking about writing women. Um and he goes into, I am a straight white Jewish man. Okay. Like he literally says the thing. Um, and he says, I'll steer clear of writing about what it means to be black in America. My contribution to equality will be having it be irrelevant to the story, which could be fine, by the way. I like, you know, the way I like, you know, colorblind casting and Shakespeare or whatever. I don't care if you have a black lady Macbeth. But you're writing about ostensibly American politics, where actually it isn't irrelevant to the story. <laughs> it's it's a pretty big deal. But it's yeah, int- you, it's a part of the equation you've got to factor in when you're trying to explain these things. It, you know, it's a, it's around. Yeah, it, it would be strange to ignore. Um, so he says he tries to like fix it with writers' room diversity. <laughs> He also says, like, you have to identify with your antiheroes, which I think he doesn't really have any antiheroes, so that doesn't really make any sense. He says, I have to find it out what it is about them that makes them like me, which, again, <laughs> he just writes himself, which, again, like, is, is, uh, you know, he has to, like, identify with the character, which I think that's a very childish way of looking at things. Like, I, I, I love Lolita. I don't identify with, with the pedophile that abducts a little girl. I mean, I think that you... When you're trying to create another character, I think that you're you're trying to find some like common, like emo experience or like emotional emo- something like that can relate you to them to make it easier to like create them. But when he says that, he doesn't mean like the emotional core, like you know things that all people have in common, experiences that are true to everyone, no matter how evil. He means things like speech pattern, and, yes. and, and you know like like mode of argument and and and, uh, and catchphrases. Just the most, the most, like, what, in what way can this person be turned into me at the most superficial level? Yeah. Um, the way, the way that he's talking about this kind of reminds me of, um, Matt, you watch the show Mind Hunter, right? Oh, yeah. The, it, he, the way he's talking about interrogating these ter- characters reminds me of the shows where the, the parts where they're interviewing serial killers, where it's just like trying to find oh, common yeah. ground with sociopaths. Yeah, yes. and the one guy gets in it too much, and then, and then, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. That was a, re- that was a really good scene. Also, like, when you read the actual history of that guy, it's like he was so clearly a sensationalist. And they do, I think, a pretty good job building into the fact that, like, you know, the whole idea of profiling is kind of a fabrication. Oh, yeah. It's some pseudoscience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
Um, totally, totally made up. It makes people feel like in, in control, though, because it's like maybe we can prevent this or whatever. And sometimes people just got bad wiring, man. Yeah, I think that the show actually does a decent job of sort of under, undermining the whole project. But By the end, certainly. Yeah. Um, so Sorkin talks about a few good men. He admits that Nicholson sounds like a sociopath, but then he's like, "Well, but Bobby Knight uh, used those spe- used that speech to motivate his players." And it's not like, a sociopath, Bobby Knight. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Um, he says he doesn't like mustache twirling bad guys, which actually I do like agree with that. But also, there is such a thing as enjoying being a bad guy. Like I remember Jillian Anderson was playing like Thatcher and she gave one of the, uh, this, I hate this dumb actress speak where she's like, you know, I just really felt like she was such a complicated character and so misunderstood. Just be like, look, it is fun to play a monster. I am going to have yeah. a great time. I'm going to dig in my heels and be this horrible bitch that dismantled an entire country's workers movement. Like that's cool. That's way more cool than, like, you know, she had an intimacy with her husband. And it's like, fuck off. Like, you don't have to like her to like the parts, you know? There, I'm, try- I'm trying to think of, like, bad guy. I mean, a few good men, I guess. That's the weird thing about West Wing. The only bad guys in West Wing, like, who you could fully say are bad guys, are, like, faceless foreigners. Yes, Muslim, It's like mostly. when the fake Al-Qaeda, like, kidnaps his daughter or something. <laughs> it's like and he recuses himself from being president like yeah. even the like newt gingrich dennis haskert composite isn't mm-hmm. evil at all he's just like i think being a republican is the nice thing to do <laughs> like, <laughs> but we all care about the country yeah. it's so weird because it's a story about american politics where no one is a bad guy yeah, 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 bad, yeah. Like, how the only bad guys are outside shit. of america how does everything suck so bad because yeah. he believes it's it's uh, politics are a matter of maintaining stasis, not like a conflict. I'm trying. Okay, the only bad guys who are like American in that show are like in the first season when it's like the bad. But he's not even a bad guy. He's just like an idiot. And then the famous scene where the president calls in all the religious people to own them oh, with God, logic. So good. Those are bad guys. Yeah. I yeah. think also but that religious person is basically a hillbilly. Like it's very Bill Maher. Yeah. Josh and uh, Dave point out that also he doesn't like uh, environmentalists um, or like tra- like he doesn't like lefties that suggest something too outrageous. Like yeah, he he looked at like what happened in the middle of the country and was like, they're they're just bad. They're just <laughs> epic Christ hard. They saw yeah, they're epic yeah. Christ hards. They vote yeah. against their interests. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like the the anti environmental thing is interesting because. I don't think that there is a movement that's like with very few movements within the left have been as demonized as environmentalist and animal uh-huh. rights activists. Mm-hmm. Like, that's to be easiest. fair, they are annoying. But everyone's annoying. Animal it's rights like, activists are more annoying. They they, they really are. Like here's no, here's here's the up. trick here. No, here's the trick here. If if you have what should be the most popular and uncontroversial issue and yet people dislike you the least, you are doing a bad job. Animal rights stuff, my entire, like, Republican family thinks that, like, factory farming is horrible. Like, Republicans, unless they're, like, Mitt Romney, tend to hate animal cruelty. Literally, people love animals. So how bad are animal rights activists to take what should be the most popular bipartisan thing 
that you could possibly get behind and just be so annoying. Maybe it is a psyop. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I think it's a fucking psyop. Like, I think PETA is literally run by the CIA. Probably. PETA is probably like the meat industry. Like, a meat industry. When you look at something like Extinction Rebellion, it's like, that's That's clearly a a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, guess what? I hate the environment now. I heard the drums and now I hate the environment. Environmentalism and animal rights, it should be incredibly popular, but it's like, it's so easy to be against. It's so easy to like be epic and be like, uh, but uh, you don't want the uh, good Sears bacon or like, you know, why don't you go fuck a tree, you pussy? <laughs> because this shit's been so psyoped. And then any like actual radicals within the movement, the government has gone after them harder than like, like really almost any other political. That is true. Like, the ELF 90s, got there are a lot involved. of money. There's the, a lot of money. 90s, behind yeah. yeah. Well, the FBI was like waiting for the CIA to fi- finish uh, putting the thermite plasma up. They kind of like spent their they they spent their time just going to town on environmental activists. Yeah, they, yeah. They, Robert Mueller. Maybe new, Felix like, and I should do should do a, a history of animal rights episode because I know be cool. a lot. I was a vegetarian for thirteen years, um, in Indiana of all fucking places. Oh my god, a lot um, of corn. Yeah, a lot of corn meals. A lot of then. corn. A lot of milk. Pellagra. I should. I should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm getting weird depression era diseases. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, lo- also like lots of I had to have like a, t- a ton of milk, uh, which God knows the amount of like estrogen like disruption. Yeah, because like of course all that milk is full of God. Oh yeah, knows that's some what. hormonal yeah. ash milk right Extremely, there. Extremely, yeah, I'm just getting PMS like while drinking it. It's insane. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, no, no. we should we should do an episode on that sometime. That'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, just um, to go back to who's the villains in Aaron Sorkin, I was thinking about what you guys were saying between um, the West Wing about who's portrayed as vil- villainous, and also like my joke was going to be you just tossed off that like in the newsroom the villain was the news itself that had to be tamed. <laughs> but really thinking about that that first scene, who he is confrontational with is that idiot Northwestern student. That doesn't understand blonde harlot. The enemy in the real enemy in Aaron Sorkin, at least between West Wing and the newsroom, is the public. They are the monster that needs to be changed. We're gonna get into that. The viewers of the thing about it. His audience talks about it. He talks about it. Yeah, I'll put a a pin in that. So okay. Anyway, like Sorkin does these weird things, which I thought was really funny because he's such a dork. So he noticed the guy who played Toby, and they had filmed the first few episodes of the west wing and he had been wearing a wedding ring and then he came up to him afterwards he's like you know i never thought of toby as being married like clearly prepping to be like we're gonna have to reshoot all your scenes because you forgot to take off your wedding ring (laughs) and then uh this guy who must be a genius was just i mean in my head this is how it happens he apparently said to him yeah i didn't either and he's like well why did you wear a wedding ring and he goes because i want you to find a reason why my character is wearing a wedding ring which is the most amazing. I kind of if, if if he did if he's doing the thing that I thought he that I think he is doing. That's a brilliant way of being like, uh, I do not want to do reshoots. What what, a what can I do to flatter you into? <laughs> it's brilliant. Fucking owns. Yeah. Also, like, who cares? It's a fucking wedding ring. Um. Anyway. Uh. Oh man. So the stuff on research is amazing. Um, he says, uh, 
there's two types of research, nuts and bolts. And the example he used is how many nuts and bolts are at the Golden Gate Bridge. And I don't know if that's a bit of wordplay or he doesn't know that nuts and bolts is just sort of a, you know, a turn of <laughs> phrase and not a. Um, and then the other one was uh, exploratory. So, like, he's talking about expository and exploratory research, but he doesn't use either of those words at all. He just says, like, there's, like, things that you need to know that are, like, details, and then there are things that you just sort of, like, go around and learn things about stuff. So, for example, and he meant to say, I am technologically illiterate, because he was about to talk about, you know, writing, you know, the social network, but uh, it came out, I'm technically illiterate. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the example he used uh, for for, uh, exploratory research was, how does a computer work? <laughs> Not even how does the really internet work. hard to figure out if you can't read. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, he's technically illiterate. Um, so he says maybe about 90% of the research he does doesn't make it into a movie. He also says he doesn't really like doing his own technical research. And he hires people to do it, which I understand if you're doing something like The West Wing, where there are so many. Like, I don't understand the roles of every every like a person on white house staff i never have i have to google it every time that one of them gets replaced i'm like what what does this person do again and uh it turns out like it kind of also varies between administration what they do so it doesn't really matter like these are you know it's a lot of soft skills in these jobs so i understand like you know like you want people who are specialists and consultants and stuff for something that comprehensive but he doesn't really seem to like doing research except for interviews, which is weird because can you imagine being interviewed by Aaron Sorkin? Him just being like three inches from your face being like, "Uh uh-huh, and then what happened? (laughs) He also had former Secret Service Reagan on his staff. He says he's going to name drop uh, their organization where he says it's a nonprofit that's used to find missing children. What's up? (laughs) <laughs> uh-huh. he says that like so i looked into this by the way and it's either the uh center for uh missing children or the international center for missing children which is literally just something started by the artist jeff coons to uh sort of launder his um legal fees in a paternity or in a in a custody suit that he had with his um i think hungarian porn star wife who left him after he wasn't paying child support and went back to Italy to resume working. Uh, That's the way that children go missing. Uh-huh. And then, court. and then he um, he had to give it like a deposition of, to try and get custody where he said, even though he had made like porn with this woman, uh, that she was an unfit mother because she had done porn. And yes, and uh, sorry, it was art, but there was like, it was actual sex. They, they filmed and, and displayed. And he said um, a, a, a Protestant upbringing was very important for his child. So he needed yes. to do that. Um, so he donated uh, a bunch of money to the formation of this organization. That's like the International Center for uh, Missing Children, which is not affiliated with the government institution, just the Center for Missing Children. And um, he... Uh, now, like, uh, it oversees a think tank on this, which uh, has provided a means by which that he can sort of launder his legal fees for father's rights. And by the way, that 
is why I like research. And Aaron Sorkin <laughs> will never get to enjoy that kind of moment that I got to have when I'm just scrolling through like old New Yorker articles, learning about Jeff Koons' divorce and the fact that he now runs a missing children nonprofit. Like, how would you, how do you not enjoy research? The world is so fucking weird. Research is the best part. Plus, you don't have to actually like do anything but absorb information and take notes. It's much better than actually making something, which is hard and boring. Yeah, but the out, knowing about the outside world makes it harder for you to create a fantasy version of it. <laughs> you're going to reenact all this shit in. You don't want to be reminded that your version of how politics works, Missy, is a complete cotton candy fantasy land. Oh, so God. Why would you want to research and be reminded that? I'm sorry, but uh, on that Coon story, uh, divorcing your arguing successfully in court to divorce your wife because she's simultaneously too pornographic and too Catholic uh, owns. Good job, Jeff. Yeah. Well, they had already divorced. This was him trying to get the kid back, even though he is the richest artist in the world and was just completely screwing her on fucking on child support. So he actually didn't even win the suit against like an insane woman who, by the way, later ran for one of these crazy people, um, you know, Italian Senate seats for the party of like uh, sexy pasta and peace or whatever. Because That's half the parties in Italy. I know. Like, a one of the best sexy women in the Senate. <laughs> one of the best 30 Rock jokes was literally uh, was literally like, Lemon, you're dressed like an Italian senator, which meant she looks slutty. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. But speaking of which, so uh, Alec Baldwin, he talked about working with Alec Baldwin, who was paying like a, a surgeon at one point, and he was watching like hours of um, surgeries and in, in, like, a, you know, the, the theater. And he's like, Alec, we're not, you're not actually going to do surgery. And it's like, yeah, but shouldn't he like look at it? Like, yeah. <laughs> you should be familiar with the thing that his character does. Yeah. The I initial just... characterization of his character. Granted, actors can totally get up their own asses. And I know, I, I'm sure that, that, that Alec Baldwin is the type of person who might be, let's say, a little intense uh, with his acting preparations. But, like, surgery isn't a completely foreign thing to people. Uh, uh, doctors talk about all the time how, like, they hate in medical dramas how distracting it is when people, like, t touch things after they put on gloves or, you know, like, it, if it doesn't look right, it is distracting to some people. It's not like being an astronaut where, like, an astronaut could just start, like, you know, playing a, a, a console like a piano and I'd be like, I don't know, that's probably what they do. Like, he says of the, um, of the social network, uh, there's a line where they said, or no, not the social network, there's the Job's movie. Uh, he says, uh, the, the screen says it's unimplemented, but the dialogue box is wrong. It's a system error, which is like one of the opening lines of like the launch. And he says, yeah, I don't know what that means. He, like, wrote it into the script, and he never learned what any of that jargon meant, which, like, I don't know what it means either, but I feel like I could have looked it up. It's definitely something you could at least read a Wikipedia article about. But I could, I could ask a guy with Aaron Sorkin's resources, and he said, I never learned what it meant, but it sounds cool. And he says, I'm always looking for a, quote, cool patois. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's like, but that's, like, what does, Sorkin does use his resources and does, like, 
try to find these primary sources, but the resource how he uses them and the sources he finds are like it's mystifying. Yeah, finding finding Reagan's Secret Service agent to be like, what was he like? Was he presidential all the time? Just like bullshit. Just like bullshit. Like, what was the vibe of this guy? Right. It's <laughs> like no technical anything. So he says he doesn't always want the audience to know what the characters are talking about, which also I do agree with him on. Like, yeah, it's no, fine. Yeah, yeah. Sure. But he should know what he's talking about. I feel like that's kind of integral. Like, that's why he's the writer and I'm the audience. He talks about the more important truth. He does understand adaptation. Um, he believes he has a hypocritic oath where he doesn't want to write something that, like, hurts someone. Which, what? Yes. He <laughs> I don't he's get, a doctor. Like, someone did a school shooting because of something in West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> I have no fucking so idea. Dylan and Eric were watching. I have no idea, like, what that means. And it's like, but it also proves that, like, he can't write about a bad guy. Like, he can't make them really bad. Uh, because he says it's it, like an assassination. I guess. Yeah. yeah um, I mean, he loves writing about true stories and in the true stories that he writes about to be dramatic thing. People have to do bad things to other people. So like theoretically yeah. somebody involved in like the Facebook creation would watch the social network and be like, Oh, I look like an asshole here. That would hurt somebody. I don't believe that. I think it's just, he says he doesn't want to write really, really bad guys. Uh, and he believes that he can't do that, but it's like sometimes there are sometimes people are really really bad. There's some bad seeds. Yeah, yeah. Some people got bad uh, wiring. I think like, honestly that he doesn't want to write bad people, really bad people, because he's afraid he'd do such a good job <laughs> that he <laughs> people that they were actually good, and that the bad things they did were good, and that they would go out and do them. Must be. I it. think you're completely inside Sorkin's mind right now. <laughs> I think you are completely correct because it's like he's like no. When that if Hitler spoke with my dialogue, yeah, exactly, exactly. Think he's cool. It would be if so Hitler exactly right. As a screen, as a speechwriter, he would all be speaking German. He would be like walking down hallways. He would be like dang Lana Del Rey teaching the girls that it's cool to get hit by your boyfriend. <laughs> he would be glamorizing the evil. What's the Lana Del Rey thing? People are mad. Oh, about? people are There's getting mad because she's. Like, Said I'm something. a sexy baby. Yeah, yeah. And people are like, this is wrong. Don't you know what happens to sexy babies? And it's like, you know, it's just a song, right? Like, it's literally just a song. Also, I'm sorry. Female empowerment does not make a good love song. Like, <laughs> yeah. being pathetic makes a good love song. So I, as far as I could tell from listening to one Lana Del Raytheon album like many years ago, <laughs> all her songs are about, like, d- d- being in love with a, like, uh, greaser who abuses you. Yeah, yeah. For a while, it was really, really a uh, retro, and now it's yeah. more like uh, the Chris Isaac kind of wicked game. Uh, That's the fucking is, coolest song ever. It's the coolest song. It's, it's the horrible. hottest video. It is very sexually hilarious. formative to me. Um, it did, however, do a terrible disservice to the culture by uh, glamorizing sex on the beach, which is actually gross and sandy. Very difficult. Very gross. It's very uncomfortable. So really, Not Chris good. Isaac has a lot to answer for in glamorizing uh, glamorizing something that is bad and wrong. Well, maybe he did it right. He seems like a cool guy. <laughs> he, and it's could, like, he somehow yes, finds a way so. to fuck on the beach where he doesn't get sand in his asshole. If anyone could do it, it would be Chris Isaac. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. Oh, God. That like, video. If, like a normal civilian attempting sex on the beach, they are getting rashes you haven't even thought about. 
He You're getting rashes you won't fucking believe. He actually, and people don't notice this because the song is so hot, it's full of yodeling. He's yodeling yeah. in that song. Yeah. He makes yodeling <laughs> hot. <laughs> he makes yodeling hot. He's amazing. He's um, the king. Yeah, so, okay. Then he moves on to the audience. He says, an audience is a component in the event, which, you know what? I'm good for him. I didn't, I didn't think he'd get that far. He talks about um, the balance of explaining and condescending to the audience because it says, like, your, your audience is smart. And I don't think he gets that, like, actually he panders to his audience. He does, this, he does this nagging thing where he says, like, I know you don't know what this is, but you know what this is, and that's why you're smart. Like, it's like a weird kind of, like, manipulative thing where it's like, uh, you know, you, you're kind of a butterface, but man, that ass. Like that's what he does with audiences. Well, it's also well, it's also like, and this was kind of the thing that I was talking about earlier. It's like it. He seems to feel like the, even though he says that you don't need to like pander or, or like explain versus lecturing to, it does seem like the goal of an Aaron Sorkin property is to teach the audience to live a virtuous life by virtue oh, yeah. by way of oh, his yeah. argument. Yeah. Well, I think it's also a salesman sort of tactic of being like, look, I'm not going to talk down to you. You're a smart guy to get them to buy the more expensive yes, product. Yes, yes. I you am know? a smart 100%. guy. Yeah. I am. I will. I will buy the copper ki- piping. Um, when I was a teenager, I bought a book called The Intelligent Person's Guide to Philosophy <laughs> because the title had it for intelligent people. Right. <laughs> it's like, well, if I well, I'm reading it. Therefore, I am one. Yeah. I bet, though, at this point, uh, the dumb bitch's guide to philosophy would sell much better. Oh, much more. Yeah. That would be, oh, yeah. it would get a blurb from, like, you know, Anna and Dasha. <laughs> it would, like, you know, it, it would be, every, every girl would be taking an Instagram uh, selfie with their copy. Like, yes. it, it would go viral. Um, because we're, we're all getting, we're, the, we're sipping on dumb bitch and philosophy juice. <laughs> we're, we're all, we've all been humbled and we just want to admit that we're dumb bitches that need someone to explain the philosophy to us. Yep. Like, um, uh, the for dummies series, but with like pink covers instead. Yeah. I mean, you could literally call the West Wing the, the thinking man's guide to American politics. Absolutely. Yes. 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 Like, mm, yes. Indeed. Yes. Quite. Um, he admits that he has no natural intuition about story uh, and went to college for a BFA f- because he required an academic approach to drama, which is really interesting. He's like, no, I, I, don't, I don't have any like, natural aptitude for it. So then he gets into Aristotle. <laughs> uh, so he gets into Aristotle's poetics, uh, which is like the uh, first, and still, like, the primary text on drama, um, which I did end up reading, like, because it's, cause it's like, 60 pages or something. Um, and he has this thing where he says, like, rules are what make art beautiful, otherwise you're just finger painting. And I agree with that. Because even if you ignore the rules, you have to know what the rules are to yes, break them absolutely. in an interesting way. And that is the problem, I realized, with Sorkin's whole dialogue thing. And so I want to retract what I said before. He does know that it's not realistic dialogue. He does know on some level that it's stylized. He just has no idea how. Because he, he doesn't know what real dialogue sounds like. So he knows that like this is like a style thing because people tell him. But like he, he couldn't imitate real dialogue if he tried. Which is insane. It's fucking insane. 
Like he's, he's figured out, um, yeah, I have a style and it's like, well, but that's just, you're just one of those, um, you know, abstract painters that paints abstractly because you don't know how to paint well. <laughs> but he says, be a David, be a diagnostician. Uh, when you see something and it doesn't work, instead of just being snarky about it, instead yes. of instead of instead of just this is a quote, joking with your friends about how bad this thing was, figure out why it's bad. Okay, we are totally agree We're doing with that. being we a did two episodes about it. Yes, exactly. He's just like, but he does not recognize that humor and comedy and parody and irony are a diagnostic tool. Mm-hmm. Like that's how that's that's a great way to figure out like. How is how do you make fun of something? And just because you like some of the best stuff in the world are is very easy, it's very ripe for parody. It doesn't mean it's bad, but like making fun of something is an amazing diagnostic tool for seeing like what makes it fucking work. Like how many I mean, like in fact, like I think like the sturdiest the sturdiest fiction usually like the sturdiest mass fiction is the most reliable parody. Like the things that are most routinely parodied are things that are like pretty narratively sturdy and memorable like things like the matrix that are parodied all the time or like fucking casablanca there are things that right. people have an easy time latching onto and remembering the vital elements of think about like tex avery cartoons and how many like um tropes of old movies they used where they were just like yes. making fun of like you know betty davis or peter lawyer or whatever it wasn't because they were bad. It was because they were extremely memorable but the comedy was an amazing like diagnostic tool for like figuring out like what the essence of that character was and what their vibe was. But also it's a great way of fucking taking apart bad art too. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like usually parodies of bad art. They're usually like very one off because bad art's incredibly ephemeral and it usually goes right through you unless it's like sort of so comprehensively weird. It has its own following like the room. The room is lasting because it's so, like bad art's usually just derivative of other things, but sloppy, and it does a million little tiny things so wrong that it just goes right through you, and it's unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like there, it's like I don't know, like whatever Mad TV parody of like <laughs> whatever like shitty action movie, like pay pay back or paycheck with Ben Affleck, that one movie where he would get his memory wiped. <laughs> You wouldn't remember, you wouldn't be still be doing parodies of that in 2020 because no one remembers that movie from 2003, that very forgettable mid-tier, mid-box office shit. But um, you would be able to do that with The Room because it's so, like, everything about it is so baffling because it yeah. is kind of ambitious, but the creators have none of the tools needed. Yeah, to it's, it's so ambitious and, what they want. and so poorly executed. Mm-hmm. yeah which is amazing well, that's like we do we do a lot of like parody and jokes about like christian movies mm. for this and i feel like those are like we can always do those because usually the thing isn't that i wouldn't say it's that they're lazy they're just so baffling and they have such a different aura like a whole different a regular vo- bad movie. a whole different film vocabulary which makes yes. it interesting to make fun of because you can feel the tension between what like their literal like book of words they can use and what you'd come to expect yeah. from a mainstream movie. But also parody and mockery does not, um, you know, uh, destroy like, uh, or, or trick an audience into believing that a good thing is bad. So like, that's not really like, like that's almost like an unfounded fear that like you can't be made fun of. Cause it'll mean like, it'll mean no one understands your art is good. 
That's totally absurd. There was like a some like um, the, okay, there was a an essay uh, by this feminist Barbara Grizzuti Harrison where she just made fun of Joan Didion and everything she said was right, and it's just sort of ruthless. And she called her um, a hysterical share posing as a writer. But it doesn't mean that I don't like Joan Didion. It's she's like, but those criticisms were also right. Or like, whatever. I remember there's a tweet about like come town once where they said, and then, and then, uh, you know, Nick says, uh, uh, like, what if a Chinese guy was gay? Um, Adam says, yeah, cool. Uh, Stav laughs like a dolphin. That is like actually a good tweet. And this is a person that like hated come town. But they didn't get that, like, yeah, that is funny. Like, you being able to make fun of it doesn't mean it's not good. Right. And, and right. like, even, you know, your whatever, like, cute tweet about it is, like, not bad and not even a poor consolidation. But something being mockable doesn't mean it's good. A lot of great stuff is really mockable because it's absurd and insane. Yeah. Citizen Kane is absurd, and it's still a great movie. Yeah, it's absurd and highly parodyable and mockable, but yeah, that doesn't make it bad necessarily. Yeah, so he 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 says read Aristotle's Poetics, which is really kind of a maybe not whatever. All they right, they, buddy, they, I'm they definitely going to do that. They have a I did. Uh, so they have a they have a like cheat sheet for Aristotle's Poetics, which is like totally um, bad. It's not good. Um, and it doesn't understand certain things, but I do. I do sort. Of, I do agree with him that you should know the rules because you can't even. You can't. There's no avant garde if you don't know the vanguard. Which is kind of a a frustrating thing to hear him say, since he works so exclusively within his own self defined yep. rules. Yep. And like, if people who have style, like often the best art, especially in Hollywood, is when people who have style or creativity or ambition watching them bump up against the limitations put onto them by the business or the other people around them or stuff. And like, which is why there's so many, you know, auteur filmmakers who have these careers where they have these great tight early films and then they get success and then eventually create are given unlimited freedom to do something and make something Mm -hmm. totally incomprehensible and bizarre when they, when they have unlimited freedom because the, the tension is what makes something good. Well, that, that is, I think like, what is the difference between Avatar and T2? Terminator 2 is one of the greatest. Yeah. I seriously it's think great. it's one of the greatest yeah. fucking movies ever made. Yeah. <laughs> I think Avatar is unfairly maligned, but I'm not <laughs> going to say that it's on the level of T2. No, but it's really interesting. But but it's like T2 is Cameron. He's uh, running up against the edges of an action movie, the confines of it. Yeah. And he does the best job he can do. He fills those spaces the best that anyone ever has done in right. an action movie. Yeah. It's the best stretching of the confines of the genre ever. And that's why it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Right. But and, Avatar and that's is the thing just, is that like Avatar, he's like, what if I just made everything from scratch and a whole world yeah. and a whole economy and a whole like, and it's just like, you know what? That might've been a little too ambitious, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. It, but it's still, Avatar it's still, still interesting. Has better. Avatar has better politics than Parasite. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I guess uh, what I I'm saying that, is by that, the way, I, uh, that is a joke. That's correct. No, I'm right. I'm totally right. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that for as much as we clown on him, I would genuinely like to see Sorkin's avatar. For him to just oh like, real, pull the <laughs> yeah. lid off and be to like... create an entire yes. world? Oh, my yes. God. And it has to be like to, to do something where he... Because he, he basically is just a bag of dramatic tricks, right? 
Yeah. All right. They would I need it. A, they I would need it. another coup in Colombia. I tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, I got it. It would be. It would be about like a president who invents a computer. <laughs> Go How about in this? Space. Here's my pitch. President world. Every every person is the president. Yeah. Exactly. In, in and I was going to say, so it starts off, they're in the spaceship going to president world. There's a lot of snappy dialogue. And then the camera pans to the front of the ship through the big windshield. And it shows that the planet is shaped like the White House. <laughs> oh, God, we're on to something. That would be, well, Sorkin's utopia where everyone is the president, that is the final goal of communism, kind of, if you think yeah. about it. It's yeah. true. Sorkin is the most influential communist screenwriter. <laughs> Um, okay, so he moves on to writing scenes. He says, be careful about standing still. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Yeah, yes, sir. yeah. Uh, he's very insecure with silence, quiet, stillness. He said, stories involve motion. And if the story uh, doesn't involve motion, you put the camera on a dolly and, and make it do a, a, a fucking like roller coaster ride around a still scene of like five people around a table because you can't stand the sound of two people's voices. He can't stand silence or stillness. And he makes so, movies about offices. I love that is a sort of thing. Like that is what I loved about the West Wing, that scenes where it's just like a bunch of old guys at a table talking about social security or arguing about PBS. It's filmed with like the the kinesis of a CKY skating video segment. Yes, he, ta- it, <laughs> he, he just yeah. His it, I think that the director's major uh, you know cinematic influence was the Tony Hawk video game. Like yes. it's completely insane, but it's just five guys around a table. He uh, let's see here. He does talk about comedy. Um, he says oh um, yes. he likes it when smart people slip on a banana peel. Not um, when morons do it, because that's where they belong, those stupid yeah. pigs. Well, I, Sorkin does agree with me that the funniest possible thing that I've talked about before would be a science nerd breaking all the science shit with his heart on. From yes, agreed. Yeah. You are correct, Aaron. That there is are the certain things. Thing. There are certain things that I, I've talked about this with my friend Jed. Like, look, uh like uh someone falling down the stairs holding something uh very valuable that breaks is funny uh mm-hmm. losing um you know uh, a piece of your steak down at a dowager cantus's bazoom is very oh, funny dear. yeah like things that are that uh, interrupt polite society or or crush precious things are funny um, do you want do, do you want to hear a good real life example of that? Yes. My grandfather was he was a doctor and he was also a professor of philosophy. <laughs> and one time he <laughs> dropped an eclair down the cleavage of the university president's wife. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. He that rocks. Dude. That's great. That's a Marx Brothers movie. He swagged it. Yeah. <laughs> he fucked around. <laughs> Um, so he admits he doesn't know a lot of rules about comedy. Uh, he says that odd numbers are funnier than even 17 is funnier than 16. Is I don't know. I mean, what I think it might be right. I can't explain it, but he might be correct. I don't know. I'll have to investigate it further. He might be right about that one. Um, he doesn't even start with like the most elementary stuff because he doesn't like making fun of appearances. Um, yeah. He says he likes callbacks and like sleepers, but the thing is his shit moves too quickly to really have a callback because he's impatient. So he'll be like, uh, you know, he used some examples. So it was like, I work with some of the smartest people in 
in the world. Some of the smartest goddamn people in Hollywood. And then, and then someone in the scene like falls, like sits down on a chair that like breaks or whatever. And it's like, it's, it moves so fast that like, you can't do a callback if you don't wait for something to call back for. He has no patience for it. Yeah. So it's just, it's also weird to go vaudeville with like a drama script. Like he could, he could maybe have some witty banter. I don't know. He admits well, okay. he doesn't understand comedy. Well, going back to the thing about Sorkin and Legs, he's a very antiquated guy. Not that his opinions are conservative, but that he is like a screenwriter from 1932. Yeah. And like the only way he can think of someone being funny is like, yeah, dropping the eclair down the woman's cleavage. Mm. The, but but like, he won't do that because it's too crude. And he won't make fun of like faces because he's, that's mean. Right. Um, but it's like it's like those aren't the only two options in comedy is like the eclair or saying someone's ugly. It's mm-hmm. like that's why we've talked about uh, the thick of it a lot. Um, the thick of it is so funny because I mean, it's funny kind of for the same reasons that a lot of brass eye and day to day shit's funny. Mm-hmm. It's that ineptitude like, is funny. Ineptitude mixed with pomposity is hilarious. Yes, yes, that's yeah. that's and an, uh, a confident and competent person um, is always funny. It was a uh, whatever Parks and Rec's lady just said Amy like po- her, Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler, yeah. So Amy Poehler said that her favorite characters to play were women with an undue sense of confidence, and it's like yeah. it's true. That's funny. That's genuinely funny. Um, yeah, like that's also uh, why that's also why Parks and Rec's got not funny at the end because you started to think that she deserved her confidence no yeah they made her into a superwoman so there was no contrast yeah so he talks about the other guys and adam mckay and um he he likes that stuff other guys is hilarious yeah um, that's an incredibly fucking funny movie it's weird though that like the adam mckay comedies break all of the rules that sorkin like they're really non-linear. Half of them are developed yeah. from improvisation, and they're just like they're just character-driven work. They're amazing. Um, that movie, like the f- to me, the funniest joke in that movie is when there's like the nerd accountant at the NYPD, and Wahlberg is like, "What do you do around here?" And he's like, "I do accounting, and I make a mean pot of decaf." And he's like, "Exactly, you're a worthless piece of shit." <laughs> like, that's entirely yeah. character entirely the whole thing yeah i actually um, just rewatched the other guys and i love the end credits of, the, of that where the entire movie is just like this goof them up about crimes and then the end credits and we love adam mckay mckay but the end credits are just a powerpoint presentation about financial corruption set to rage against the machine's cover of maggie's farm you can just <laughs> no, yeah. Rocks. yeah yeah you can just tell adam McKay, mckay is like what i really want to do is explain how bad financialization is. He's a dude. Right and was and dude's embryo, wrong. Yeah. It was the embryo for the big short right yeah. there. Mm-hmm. So just to sort of like get to the, 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 the final, the, the final thing here, um, where he goes to writing captivating dialogue. And this is what <laughs> we're all here for. Yeah. Get the popcorn. This is what we're all here. They saved it for the end. You were patient. Um, so, he says captivating, which I think is a very telling word because the meaning of the word captivating is literally something that holds you captive. He says the dialogue is the least teachable part of writing. I'm not sure if I agree or disagree with that, but that is a thing that he said. Uh, he also said dialogue is music. 
he says that anytime someone is speaking, it's for the purpose of performance. So study the pulpit and the soapbox. One of the homework assignments, he says, is to learn about dialogue, is to look at Obama's 2008 acceptance speech and listen to it. <laughs> so For, for dialogue? <laughs> yes. That's li- not dialogue. It's not dialogue. That's, That's a monologue. monologue. Yes, it's... That's- literally a monologue it's not just that it's ad copy <laughs> that's also true you're not talking it's not communicating to any person anything it's just total vacuity yeah th- but that's the thing that i realize it's like okay he gets that his dialogue is stylized he just has no idea how because he doesn't know what real dialogue sounds like so when he listens to people talk he immediately his brain has like a little uh, a little brita filter in it that filters it down into sorkin speak because that's all he can do now. He says that when he writes uh, a script, he will know if actors have dropped a syllable or added a syllable. Not a word, not a phrase, a syllable. He believes that his scripts are delivered to him from God. (laughs) And anything an actor does with them, even adding or subtracting a single syllable, is wrong. And 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 it's adding a note to a symphony. He literally says that. He also plays every part of everything that he writes. He walks around and does his dialogue with himself. Uh, He said he once broke his nose while writing, but he didn't say, I destroyed my septum, which is what I... He says he just reads his own work so violently that that's what happens. Yeah, that's how it happens. Yeah, that's how it happens. Um, So he does like a final closing thoughts thing. And... You're watching this man sort of like confusedly go through the rules of his like algorithm, which has been very successful. And this is when I'm actually kind of heartbroken for him because one, they cut out like fucking six hours of this thing where he interacted with an actual classroom of like wannabe writers. And he's very sweet to them. And he's like, well, the good news is you're all writers. You're all real writers. Um, but I actually kind of believe that he likes them and he wants them to succeed. Um, so he's saying they're all talented. They're all whatever. They're all successful. They're all going to be successful, which is like a horrible thing to tell. It's like a commencement speech. It's like idiotic. <laughs> um, but he, he does seem to actually like them. And when he gives like final closing advice, one of the things that he never really mentions is... Or, or that he mentions but doesn't mention it in any of the writing process or that in any of this any of this process that like you're supposed to have peers and colleagues and collaborators and you know people you work with so he said find people who you can trust who will like read your work but it's like you never mentioned that in any of this shit and the whole point of a class and this gets down to my issue with masterclass is that it is a shortcut to an artistic community where you have someone leading it who has more experience than other people who can tell you things that maybe disagree with, but also you have people around you that you can discuss things with. It's a, it's a, it's a community thing. I mean, like even when I moved to New York, I immediately like found people to live with who I thought were talented that didn't do the same thing as me. They weren't successful, but they were like talented. I think when Felix moved in with me, he was still missing a tooth from a fight and had a lisp. It wasn't a, it wasn't a fight. It was, um, I just had a rotted tooth. I mean, it was probably that tooth got fucked up from training. 
But uh, I did train in a very dingy gym where it got fucked. I didn't wear a mouth guard. It was my fault. I would go but, so uh, far as to say that uh, that uh, you were not um, successful is where we'll go after. No, I, uh, it was a transitory period of my life. Yeah. When Nick moved in with us, I think he might have had scurvy. He absolutely did. Nick 100% had scurvy. Yes. No doubt. So, like, uh, the idea, and maybe it's because I come from a punk background, that you should actually surround yourself with people who you can butt up against is sort of tacked on at the end, but he never puts it as a part of his, like, writing process at all. And it's just, like, where are the, where are the hangs? Like, where's, where's, like, hangs with your buddies who, like, love the things that you love? And where's, like, the collaboration and friendship? And equally, where's the rivalry? Like, where's the competition? Where's the person who makes what you make in a way that you find so aesthetically offensive that you have to think harder about what you do and why you do it? Like, where is, like, the people that you want to destroy because you they suck so bad? Because those are the people that make you better. It's not just someone, even the idea of a teacher, which is a good, I hate the word mentor, it's a good concept for writing. But this isn't like, this is just a guy on a screen. And I think for someone like Sorkin, this stuff still makes sense to him because he's like, well, of course, you get the information from the screen and then you go and make art. And like, there's no, it's to him, it's not like art is social. Like that is how you fucking make something. And masterclass is just like more neoliberal isolationism. And he gets to this shit after he says all this stuff about rules and you know, how you have to trust yourself. He completely contradicts himself and says, like, find people, you know, you trust that I'm sure he doesn't have. And he says, I, you have a, the, the, the purpose of, like, grad school, for example, and he wishes so badly that he went to grad school and got, like, an, a, an MFA. He says, the purpose is to be able to write the worst things you've ever written and get them out of the way. And he said, I never got to do that. He says, I'm kind of stuck, and that window is closed for me. All the president's men was my first thing, and now that's the thing I have to do. I don't get to take chances anymore, so you need to do it. And, and I think it's really tragic because, like, I think about something that someone said about, like, the way, say, stand-up comedy works. You used to go and bomb over and over again until you got, like, something that worked, and then you worked that out and you built it up. And now with the internet, all of your bombs are forever there for everyone to see. So there's no way to, like, fail. Like, there's no, the stakes are so high because everything is constantly being recorded. And we're basically all Aaron Sorkin now. <laughs> to where we have oh, painted ourselves yes. into a corner because everyone is already watching us. And it is the only thing, like, he knows that it's a bad thing. He knows that it's like, I could have maybe been a more creative writer or developed as a voice or done more compelling things, but I got famous and successful straight out of the gate, and now I'm locked into this thing. And so he just keeps fucking like a dog tied to a post, just just, just walking like the grass down into a pit in a circle, just like doing the same perimeter over and over and over again. And it's incredibly fucking tragic. And he knows it, too. 
That is really interesting to hear his combative relationship with his own work and know that the reason that we'll never get Aaron Sorkin's avatar is because he was successful at everything he did and now can only do that one thing. Yeah, it is tragic. Yeah, like you need restraints going back a little bit to what Amber said about like, where is the combativeness? Where is the rivalry? Where is just hanging with your buddies? Sorkin does have narrative gifts. Like he writes a narrative better than a lot of other like shitty Hollywood writers. If he worked with somebody who liked characters yeah, and liked these things that he does not like, maybe he could make something that was like truly great. Or maybe if he collaborated with his actors and weren't such a fucking yes. control freak mm. and it wasn't like, I'm sorry, you dropped a syllable. Mm. It's miserable. It's like a, it's gotta be like, I do not get the impression he likes his own work or likes what he is doing. I get the impression he has figured out an algorithm and he's trying every day to remember what it was he loved about, you know, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf when he was nine years old. He needs a homie. He needs a homie. And That's what he needs more than anything. He warns these kids about like uh, these young writers about like, the internet and he's like you need to not listen to them you need to not write for other people and it's like well okay you don't write for the internet you don't crowdsource either your your compliments or your insults like you should be more distanced from the audience than most people are now just because of the internet but he took it so far to the point where he doesn't listen to anyone he has no community. He has no peers, no colleagues, no mentors. He has. He doesn't even let his actors drop a syllable. And he can't quite figure out why his stuff doesn't sparkle. And it's because it's absent other people from beginning to end. They're all gone. It's just yeah. him. It's sterile. Oh, you know, yeah, there but for the is, grace of God, man. Yeah, go outside. Yeah. yeah. Give another person, like, the benefit of any respect for their intelligence when they respond to your work. Who's someone that Sorkin would respect enough to be their friend? Literally, like, like Barack Obama. Yeah, no, that would be it. Obama, do something good for once in your life. Right. Yeah. And because of his subject, too, though, the only people that he respects enable his worst work. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe there should be like a Big Brother program where like uh you know uh I don't know, Bong Joon Ho has to hang out with him two hours a week or something. Uh, <laughs> I wish Aaron's- Tim Riggins was I wish Tim Riggins was real <laughs> because then you could make him Aaron Sorkin's friend and Sorkin could get all these formative experiences that he should have had. Yeah. He should have uh, he should have done this very early on and he and he missed his chance and he knows that and you can tell he's sort of frustrated and sad and he wishes he could have taken more chances earlier. But uh, like Aaron, all the rest Aaron, of us are all stuck. Aaron Sorkin, if you somehow uh, end up listening to this, uh when quarantine's over, come to New York. We'll get you drunk in a dive bar and t- listen to you all your your craziest ideas and tell you yeah. it, the most the most out there ones are the ones you should pursue. Aaron We can talk about movies. Are, yeah. Yeah. When the gyms are open again, you can go to the gym with me. <laughs> yeah. I, I bet he does go to the gym. Yeah, but he probably like wears 
chinos to the gym. For sure. I'm going to show him how to do it the right way. He literally has, a, I think, a sweater him. vest in this. Yeah, in an this Under Armour sweater yeah. vest. <laughs> I miss the gym so fucking much. Yeah, me too. God damn it. Uh, well, should we put a bow on this? Yeah, yes. yeah. So right. um, uh, I know this was pretty frenetic, but it is, it is, uh, it is chaos, uh, the mind of Aaron Sorkin. Um, yes. It's, it's a little difficult to parse through because, again, it was edited down from like seven hours and 38 minutes to like two and a half or something. And uh, it moves at a lightning quick pace. So it was difficult to even just fit this into two episodes. This was my 385-page script. On Aaron Sorkin. Um, but I, I hope I learned a lot personally. Uh, and, um, and I came out the other side, maybe not, you know, enlightened, but I have, I've reached some resolution about this man who has had such an influence <laughs> on uh, narrative structure and story in America. And I have to say, Aaron Sorkin, I forgive you. Ah. <laughs> Yes. It's not your fault. It's not your <laughs> fault, buddy. Let's hang out. <laughs> Come hang out. We, we can talk about movies. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> yes. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. See ya. Like you, and I know.